Morning, everybody. Uh, my name is David Soren. I am the lead pastor here at uh, Renovation Church. Uh, good morning to you. Uh, happy 4th of July. Uh, before we get into our Bible teaching for this morning, I just want to give you a real quick update on where we as a church are headed this fall. Uh, for some of you who have been around here for a while, you may know uh, bits and pieces of this. Uh, for many, many of you that are new since we opened up this building, this may be uh, new information to you. You know, when we had our very first service in this wonderful space, which was back on February 7th, it didn't completely look like this, right? For instance, on February 7th, 100% of you uh, had uh, masks on. Uh, at that point in early February, the COVID numbers were going up again. And the reality was the vast, vast majority of non-believers were not going to come to a large indoor gathering at that time in early February. And so we made a decision as a leadership of the church, rather than create a negative press in the community in the name of Renovation Church, by advertising this large indoor event in the midst of COVID, uh, we just opened up this building with zero dollars put into advertising or marketing, and everything since then has just been word of mouth. And even with just word of mouth, there are over a hundred of you that are now regular attenders here that are new since February, which is amazing. And we've seen 29 decisions for Christ just in the last few months. And so we are pumped about that. But we also know now that as COVID sort of wanes into the background, that we want to do uh, not just an opening of this building, but really a grand opening. And when I say grand opening, meaning it's going to be grand and awesome. We're talking billboards all over town, street signs on every corner, postcards in your mailbox. Every time you open up your social media, you see renovation Church, we want you really to be able now to invite anyone uh, to the grand opening of this church, and they would feel comfortable coming at this time. Honestly, with COVID numbers where they are and just how comfortable people are feeling now, I think we could even do that this summer, um, but we also know that a lot of people are gone this summer. In fact, every local tourism sector is saying, they think this is going to be one of the best summers they've ever had. And so we want to be able to do this when people are consistently here. And so we've decided that we are going to do a huge grand opening where we want you to invite uh, basically everyone you know uh, to the grand opening of this church on September 19th. Um, so start praying about that. I've, I've been saying to many of you who've been around here for a while that we just really have believed that there are going to be two waves of God's movement this year in this church. And we're really sort of on the crest of this first wave where... We've opened up the building. There are so many people coming, so many people coming to Christ. But I believe that this second wave, when we get to this grand opening phase, is going to be even larger. And we're going to see God do even more amazing things. And so we are excited for that. Okay, uh, let's, uh, let's get into our message. We are continuing in our Life of Elijah series this morning. Uh, and today, I am so happy that you're here because we've come essentially to what really is the pinnacle of the Elijah narrative in the Old Testament. The first three weeks of our series have all sort of been leading up to today, and even the many messages that we have left in this series are kind of all in the aftermath of this event. So today is the day in the Elijah series. If this is your very first time here, let me just give you some real quick context to where we are in history, where we are in the Bible. Uh, this all takes place about 850 years of B.C. Uh, at that time, we are in this story, we're in the nation of Israel, which is the northern kingdom of Israel. It was Israel and Judah at that time. And Israel was led by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, who were infamous for leading the people of Israel away from worshiping the one true God to instead worshiping false idols like Baal. 
So Elijah the prophet, whom we're talking about this summer, he comes on the scene, he confronts them, and basically says because of their wickedness, God has said that there's not going to be rain on the land for years, and the people are living in this drought. And today is finally confrontation day. So everybody everybody grab a Bible. Let's take a look at this. So uh, you can grab the Bible on the chair in front of you. We're going to be on page 244. Uh, Many of you, I know, bring your own Bible. uh, Open up to 1 Kings uh, 18, or you can use the renovation app. This is a, a bit of a lengthy story. So everybody gets something. We want you just in the Word. And we'll take a look at this. So last week, if you were here, we found out that God had instructed Elijah to go and present himself to King Ahab because God was finally going to send rain on the land. The, the discipline, in a sense, of the people is over, and their hearts are now ready to respond. So we're going to read what happens. So we're First Kings chapter 18, and we are starting on uh, verse 16, right where we left off last week. Here's what it says. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. That was basically last week. Remember, Obadiah said he had to go tell Ahab that Elijah was coming. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to them, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Okay, so what's happening here? This is really interesting. Ahab actually thinks that the drought is Elijah's fault. See, in his mind, he does believe in this false god Baal, and apparently he's surmised that Baal is mad at Elijah and thus has withheld rain. But Elijah confronts him and says, no, 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 this is happening because of your ungodly leadership. You've left God's ways. And by the way, when leadership walks away from God's ways, people always suffer underneath it. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse, verse 19 now. Now this is Elijah talking. It says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. <clears throat> so Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel, which I, I shouldn't say this all up, but I... Always feels like a location in Candyland to me. <laughs> okay, Elisha went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. They like the idea, right? Okay, if you just just pause for a second, a few notes. Elijah's intense, right? I mean, this guy is so brave. But you're also going to see, and this is actually going to become pretty apparent in the coming weeks here in the summer, at times Elijah's a bit dramatic. And you see this in verse 22. He says, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Well, it, it may be true that I guess he's the only one maybe out in public, but we just learned last week that Obadiah has stashed away 100 of the prophets, right, in the cave. So you see a little bit of Elijah's personality here. But nonetheless, this is all an amazing plan. 
Whichever God sends fire from above is the one true God. And you're going to see as we go through this passage, this isn't actually like some elaborate plan that Elijah invented. He says later that he's actually doing all of this at the Lord's command. So this is God's brilliant plan that he's come up with. Okay, let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 25 says, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. I just, I love this guy. Okay, perhaps he is deep in thought or busy. And by the way, the NIV translation that we're reading is, uh, they're trying to be politically correct and polite here. Busy is actually a euphemism for going to the bathroom. <laughs> I say, perhaps he's in the restroom or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears. This is just classic paganism. Are you trying to invoke your God to movement with something you're doing? As was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. So just we noted this started in the morning. This has gone all day long. Nothing's happening. But there was no response no one answered. No one paid attention. Just, let me just pause and point something out. What's kind of interesting here, so you study this text, Elijah is giving the prophets of Baal basically every advantage that they could have. So note, he lets them choose the bull that they want. Uh, secondly, even the competition in and of itself, hypothetically, is to Baal's advantage. Because remember, Baal is the rain and storm god. So how easy would it be for Baal to just, you know, send some lightning down and start the altar on fire? And you're going to see in a second, Elijah is even going to disadvantage himself by pouring a bunch of water on his altar, which, by the way, is not how you start a fire. But he wants people to see, without a doubt, that the Lord is God. Okay, let's finish the rest of the passage now. So verse 30 says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. Now it says four jars of water. You do it three times. It's four times three. Twelve, right? There's that number again. It's so important all throughout the Bible. You have the twelve tribes. Jesus picks his twelve disciples. It's just a number that the Lord uses a lot. Then, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. 
so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. All right. Amen, right? Wouldn't that be just amazing to see? And then shortly thereafter, what you see is the rain comes. Because the people have once again acknowledged the truth. And the rain comes. What a moment. So Elijah, he calls the people. He says, I want you, I want you to come close. You're going to need to see this. Now let's think about who these people are. These are our people that used to know the Lord. Or probably more accurately, if you go to the book of First Kings and you, you work your way backwards in time... What you see is, in reality, their parents, or even probably more truthfully, their grandparents and great-grandparents really knew the Lord. And Elijah's trying to call them back to where their culture used to be in knowing the Lord. And just reading this this week, it got me really thinking about just the state of Christianity in this country. And also what it used to be like for our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents. You know, I read a ton of uh, Christian history. Uh, biography is my favorite uh, literary genre. And over the last two years or so, I don't, I don't know, know really why this has happened, just with the, where the Lord has me, I guess. I've just been reading a ton of books, uh, a ton of biography and history that has sort of dealt kind of in the early 20th century range. And I've been reading so much of it, and it's just caused me, as I read more and more about what the church used to be like 100 years ago, it's caused me just to lament at where we are as an American church today, a hundred years later. You know, almost every book that I've read talks about how a hundred years ago, it was really common for, let me give you another example, a number of examples here. It's really common for area churches to get together and they would host mission conferences in their city or in their region and they would encourage the very people in their churches to leave, to pick up their families and leave and risk it all to bring the gospel to the nations. It's like, where is that happening nowadays? You know where that's happening? I don't know where that's happening. A hundred years ago, prayer meetings were absolutely essential in almost every church in America. That's what you did. You had a prayer meeting. You asked for the Lord God to move. Where is that happening? Do you even know five churches that even have a prayer meeting that more than three people go to in America right now? You know, many churches in the early 20th century would actually hold all-night prayer meetings to reach the lost. This was the church in America. Can you even imagine? What would we say in 2021? Church is holding an all-night prayer meeting. We'd probably say, oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. A little Timmy has to kick a ball around the field in the morning. I can't come. I don't have time to pray for the eternal salvation of someone's soul. I'm not sure our great-grandparents would even understand us. A hundred years ago, if you were a Christian, you went to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and often a midweek service. Some of you old-time saints in this room, you remember from when you were younger going to Sunday night service. Some of you young people are like, there was a Sunday night service? 
There was. It's what you did. The church was, Sunday was a Sabbath. They spent all day in worship. A hundred years ago, there were volunteers in churches, not just pastors, volunteers that went out to street corners, street preaching. Many of the people in the congregation were involved in passing out literature, tracts, finding ways to share the gospel with people. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that I had been reading and just finished an incredible book called Evidence Not Seen about the missionary Darlene Dibler. And she says in her book, that when she was put in a prisoner of war camp uh, by the Japanese in World War II, that eventually they take her Bible. And she said, you know, it was okay because when I was a kid in vacation Bible school, and she was in vacation Bible school about 100 years ago, if you follow her timeline, she said it was fine because I memorized so many verses, chapters. I even memorized the entire book of Colossians. As a child, it turns out that's why they actually, do you know this is what I call VBS? Vacation Bible School. Because it actually was a hundred years ago. Many of our great-grandparents, they lived in a world in which they fit their entire lives under God. But we live in a world in which we try and squeeze God into any remaining spaces that we have left in our lives. Because we think we have life figured out. Let's just be honest. And so we only call on God in those areas where we think we might actually really need him. But everywhere else, we just kind of grow our schedules and we got to figure it out. And I'm telling you this right now, and I'm bringing you back to a different time. Because we are not going to reach this current generation for Christ until we understand the power of God again. Until we understand that he is the Lord of everything again. We're not going to reach the masses for Christ if all churches offer them is a few ways to improve their marriages and some tips on parenting. We're not going to reach the masses for Christ if all church is is a social club where you can get in some groups with people who look and act just like you. You know, part of the problem with the church in America is churches have spent the last 100 years lowering the bar of discipleship, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And in so doing, we don't understand the power of God anymore. We don't even understand the love of God anymore. And so we've kind of been left as the church in America to rely on these really ineffective worldly methods of ministry instead of the gospel. Like, where is, you tell me, where is the power of God in our churches nowadays? Where's our passion for Jesus? Why have we stopped calling on God to bring the fire? Where are the men and women like Elijah who will cry out, answer us, O God, so that they may know who you are? Why is it in America that we have settled for trying to make fire ourselves to impress people rather than just asking the fire to come down? You know, if we don't figure this out, then perhaps we're going to be in a drought until we want it again. Let me, let me give you just an interesting scenario because I, I just want you to think about ministry and church and God differently. Okay, let's say you could redo this passage from 1 Kings 18 in modern times. Let's say we could somehow rent U.S. Bank Stadium where the Vikings play. 
and we got, there's about 65,000 people who live in Blaine. Let's say we could take all 65,000 residents and somehow get them all to U.S. Bank Stadium at the same time. That's about how many seats there are in the stadium. We filled the entire stadium with every resident in Blaine. And the first presentation was by some atheist from Blaine, and they gave a presentation on why people should not follow God and why instead they should devote their lives to all the modern-day idolatries, and there are many of them. And then let's say that you are responsible for the second presentation. And you have all 65 residents of the 65, there's more than 65, 65,000 residents of Blaine are in the stadium. You have, say, 45 minutes, and you get to tell them why they should devote their entire lives to Jesus Christ. What would you do with those 45 minutes? It's a crazy question. Well, I think we asked, look at this passage. What did Elijah do? Did he, did he call forth 100 harpists to first move people's emotions? Did he bring forth 30 minutes of entertainment from Yahweh's dance squad to get everybody going? Did he tell them that the Lord has a club that they could join where they could really make some friends first before they really hear about him? Did he give a relevant message on how the Lord could improve their happiness and finances? What did he do? He prayed. He prayed. And more than anything, he let them have an encounter with the one true God. The American church has a significant problem right now. And this is a problem that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ do not have in sub-Saharan Africa right now. They don't have it in South America, in many places where the evangelical church is exploding. They certainly don't have it in the underground house churches of China. But we have this problem in America right now. We have gotten so wrapped up in being relevant so wrapped up in entertaining. In the last couple of years, the American church has gotten so wrapped up in being appealing or palatable to the culture around us that we haven't noticed that we aren't offering the world the one thing they really need anymore, and that is the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, a couple of months ago, I was having a conversation with a, a pastor friend of mine he lived right next to Lindsay and I in seminary housing when I was in seminary. And uh, he's a pastor in Wisconsin now, but at his previous pastor, he was a pastor of this rural church in Upper Peninsula. And his church was mostly filled with seniors, with folks in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. He said they got to talking after he had been there for a few years, and they were just talking about, why is it that so few young people are coming to Christ nowadays? And yet they look back when they were young, and almost all of them came to Christ, you know, in their, in their teens, in their 20s, in their 30s. And so he just started to interview and ask them, these folks in their 80s and 90s, and said, well, how did you come to Christ years ago? And he went down, and he said there was this real similar theme in all their stories. And he would go around, and he said, well, a lot of them just said, well, I went to camp, and there was, an, you know, like an old-school altar call. And I responded. He said, some of them, well, my, my preacher in my church used to, every week, would have somebody stand if they wanted to accept Christ. He said there were a ton of them, kind of in their 60s and 70s, that said, you know, I was invited to, like, a stadium to hear an evangelist, like Billy Graham. 
when I gave my life to the Lord. And he said a lot of the people in their 80s and 90s said, I got saved at a tent revival when it came to our town back in the day. And a traveling evangelist came and shared the gospel. They all had this legitimate encounter with God as somebody clearly proclaimed the truth to them. And for some of them, it was their neighbors who had the boldness to go and just share how to be saved with them. And I think what we need to relearn as a church in America is that it is an encounter with God that will save people and it's not anything else. Now, I don't want you to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't want you to be confused here. I'm not, I'm not saying that churches can't make things look nice, right? We're in a beautiful building right now. I'm not saying that you shouldn't try and be relevant to the culture with your style of music or with your content. Any good missionary does that, right? I'm not even saying that you shouldn't do whatever it takes to try and share the gospel with people. Do an egg hunt if you need to do an egg hunt. Right? Get some inflatables. But we dare not think that anything but the power of God will awaken people. You can draw a crowd. Sure, by all means, draw a crowd. But you better be praying that when the crowd gets there, that what they see is not us, but the fire of God. You know, I've, I've had the immense privilege uh, over the years of seeing a lot of people uh, give their lives to Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you what people never say to us when we talk to them in the follow-up room afterwards. In all my years of ministry, I have never heard a single person say, you know, I was in the service and the lights were so impressive. I had to turn my life over to the Lord. In 17 years of ministry, I have never heard a single person say, I walked in and just beauty of the environment that you created, the smoothness of your transitions were so powerful, I needed to repent of my sins. I've never heard it. If you listen to testimonies, you listen closely, and we've we've shared a lot of them here. When people get baptized, you watch a video, what do you hear? I know you're going to recognize some of these because you've heard it so many times. What do people say? They say things like, I was just sitting there and I heard the message, and I've heard this like six or seven times in a church. People say, I felt like God himself lifted me up out of my chair and I stood up. Right? That's what they say. Some of them, they, they say, I was just listening to the message and I felt like God himself was speaking to me. This is the Holy Spirit encounter. Some will say, I was, I was in worship. And I just, I don't know, I just started sobbing. Others of you who've helped lead people to Christ, you know that it isn't just what you said. You know, you plant, you cultivate, and you reap. Before you reaped and before you shared the gospel with people, God was already working miracles in their lives. They had an encounter with God. That's what changes people, not some trendy new idea. The 21st century American church If we're going to be biblical, we've got to get back to the basics. That's what the American church was 100 years ago. That's what the church is around much of the globe right now. And that's true for us too. Right? We've been really trying to work this idea of of prayer meetings. Just asking God to move. That the reliance is on him, not on anything flashy we do up here. 
Right? If we're going to do this, then our prayer meetings 15 minutes before each service in the meeting room, that will be overflowing with people because we actually believe, not just with our words and statements, we actually believe with our feet that this is how we change the world. That a prayer meeting is the engine room of the church. If we're going to do this again as Christians in America, we need to start taking evangelistic risks again, like our great-grandparents did. Like people all around the world where Christianity is thriving, trusting that God will use us. Like Ben Pierce said a couple weeks ago, sure, you're going to be nervous, but at some point you just have to take a risk. We have got to get rid of this false idea. I believe this has just murdered evangelism in the last 25 years in America. It's this idea that if we were just really kind to our friends and neighbors and coworkers, if we were relevant, if they saw how cool we were and we, cool we were and we brought donuts once a week, that eventually they will break down and they'll come over to our cubicle and they'll say, how can I be saved? You are so cool, so hip, so relevant. Your donuts are so... It's never going to happen. Ever. At some point, we've got to take a risk and share the gospel. And you proceed that every time by being a people again that will have calluses on their knees. A people that will look at their parents that aren't saved, their coworkers that aren't saved, their best friends that aren't saved, and have calluses on their knees because they're going, not, Lord, make me really kind and relevant to them. They're going, Lord, would you bring a pillar of fire moment in their life? Would you bring it, Lord? Because that is how people come to Christ. It's not through our own producing. It's through the Lord. And that's what we need. We need God to bring the fire again. That's when people fall down and they say, the Lord, he is God. And I think this isn't going to happen unless we, as a people of the church, unless we get it right in our own lives, and unless we get our own dedication to the Lord right. You know, I think one of the most powerful verses in this entire passage is verse 21. I want to throw it up on the screen again for you. It says, Elijah went before the people and he said, how long, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And I think this is really indicative of so many Americans today. We just waver. We say, yeah, you know, God, Jesus, he's, he's, he's the Lord. But in reality, we just waver. We're here on a Sunday, but by the time you get to Monday... He's not the Lord anymore. I talk to so many people nowadays. They come to church. But when life really comes to a head and they've got to do something that would be really hard or inconvenient, they follow the world. They don't follow Jesus. We just waver between the two. But if the Lord is really God, follow him. I want you to just think about this. Put your thinking caps on. If Jesus Christ is actually the Son of God, And he really did come to earth. And he truly died on the cross, seeing every sin you've ever committed, everything. Saying, I want to die in your place. I love you so much. And that if you would believe in that, 
and you would repent of your sins. You say, I'm done with my old life. I'm done living for myself. I'm done. I'm letting him be the Lord, the leader of my life. If you would do that, that he would wipe away everything. And not only that, come into your life, have a relationship with you, and give you eternity in heaven forever. If that's true, if that's true, then you cannot live in the middle. Either he is the Lord of your life or he is not. But living in the middle makes no sense whatsoever. And I think we need to respond to this as a people. Don't you just feel that? Uh, uh, here's what we're going to do. In just a minute, we're going to sing a final worship song. Yeah, I think it's a really appropriate song. It's this song called What a Beautiful Name. And in the bridge of that song, we sing to the Lord that you have no rival. There is no Baal. There is no other God. There is no other idol worthy of our devotion. It's only him. And if at any time during that song, you need to say to God for the very first time, I'm going to follow you. If you truly love me that much, that you came and you took the punishment for my sins and you died in my place, I want to believe in that. I want to turn my life over to you. I need to be forgiven by your sacrifice. If you've never done that before, that's what it is to become a Christian, a Christ follower, to believe he died and to follow him. If you've never done that before, what I want you to do, we'll all be standing, is I want you to just courageously walk down to the front right here in front of the stage. That may feel like a scary thing to do, a hard thing to do, but following Jesus is not easy. But it is so good. If you need to do that at any time during the song, I want you to just come down, and then at the end, uh, we'll, we'll pray for you and get you some resources to get started. But then I want to talk to the rest of you in this room who are already Christians, which is most of you. If you are here this morning, and this message is just hitting you in the heart, and you're going, I'm wavering. I'm not actually truly living right now like he is my number one, that he is the Lord. We want to pray over you this morning. And so what we're going to do, we're going to have a number of our elders and just prayer warriors on the back wall over here and on the back wall over here. And if at any time in the last song, you just need to say, I need someone to pray over me right now to just make him number one again. We want to pray over you. And that may feel like a scary thing to do. But the thing is, you never move out of anything unless you take an action step, right? The Lord's not going to move if you just keep your car in park. Maybe today you just need to take a step to say, okay, I just need someone to pray over me. Honestly, this could be half of us in this room. So I don't need you to feel like, oh, I'm that person and this is so embarrassing. No, you're a courageous person for taking the step. So if you need to get up, I want you to go to the back and we'll have someone pray for you. And we'll just pray. The rest of us will just pray that the Holy Spirit would just move mightily in this room this morning, and through us as a people. I'll pray for that right now, and then we'll worship. God, we thank you so much uh, for your word, that you just take us back to reality, that it is not us trying to impress people. It's not us manufacturing a fire that brings revival and change. It's when you send the fire. God, we just ask that you would send it to this church, that we would become less and decrease, and that you would increase and become more. And Father, that people would see you 
They would see your love and your grace and they would be drawn to it. And we ask that you do that even right now in this space. And we just love you. And we just declare that your name is beautiful and it's powerful. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.